you haven't already made your way to the book of Ephesians, please do so. We'll be in <clears throat> verses 7 and 8. Rusty made the comment to me this past week. Well, let me give you a backdrop real quick. I have the tendency, <laughs> I don't know why, the tendency to adopt the accent of whoever's around me. It's particularly bad when I go to Jeet, India. Okay? <laughs> so Rusty makes the comment to me this past week. He says, it's probably a good thing that you're not listening to Lloyd-Jones as you are studying Ephesians because you would try to adopt his accent. So I have begun rolling a few more of my R's. <laughs> Gracious, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I am reading through his sermons. <laughs> For this sermon, he wrote three, uh, just to give you an idea. Uh, he wrote three for verses seven and eight. So, nevertheless, so I would open with that funny. Let's read just verses three through eight, and then we will jump into this. So, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray, Father. Just ask for Your blessing as we study Your Word in these next few moments, Father. It's in Jesus' blood that we are able to speak to You this morning. We pray. It's in His name. Amen. We have been convinced... I'm going to set this up this way. We, we got kind of your first point that you see on there. I'm going to reach into chapter 2 to help set us up to understand verses 7 and 8. So with that said, we've been convinced, I think, in our culture and our world that the way we understand freedom, the way we understand freedom is that we are only free when we are able to do whatever our hearts desire, right? Whatever we want to do, whatever we choose to, whatever's in front of us, as long as I can choose A, B, C, D, E, F, etc., etc., I am free, and that is freedom. Freedom is only freedom when I can choose whatever's before me, okay? That is probably the definition that many of us even have in this room. I want to challenge that for just a few seconds. I'm not going to work through all of this perfectly. I'm not even going to try to flesh all of that out. But I want to propose in working through what he's going to talk about in 7 and 8 that that, that idea of freedom 
is not freedom at all. I, I think the illusion in that statement, the statement, freedom is only freedom when I can choose whatever is before me, the illusion is that statement is that you can indeed choose anything that is before you. I don't think, I just think that's simply not true. Here's why. I think you're actually a slave to choosing what you most greatly desire in that moment. Now you say, well, I can desire this, I can desire that, I can desire this. And I would say, ah, all of your life circumstances, all of the past, everything that, that makes up your life is what's bringing about desires in your heart. And in that moment, you're going to choose what you most greatly desire. You're not free to choose B if you most greatly desire A. You go into an ice cream shop, and you really want chocolate ice cream. You know, you saw a chocolate, you know, that's like been your favorite all of your life, right? And you go, and that morning someone has chocolate that they brought to work, and you taste that chocolate, ooh, man, chocolate ice cream sure does sound good, right? And then you go down the road, and you see a big sign for Grater's ice cream with a chocolate, you know, shake on there. That's like one of my favorites, right? And you're like, oh, chocolate sounds good. When you get to the chocolate place, are you free to choose strawberry? I would argue you're not. You're only free to choose chocolate because that's what you most greatly desire at that moment. The next day, all the same stuff happens. Your entire life passed with chocolate. It's every, the circumstances are exactly the same. You see the same billboard. You walk in. You're not going to choose strawberry. You're going to choose chocolate. You're a slave to what you most greatly desire in that moment. You can't choose B or C or D or E or F, etc., etc., if what you most greatly desire is A. You're a slave to your desires. Each and every single one of us, even this moment, is a slave to our desires. We have been and will always be slaves to our desires. I want to argue that in one sense, we're really not ever free if you're going to define freedom as being able to equally choose A, B, C, D, E, or F etc. Now here's the deal. When it comes to these desires, though, desires in and of themselves, like the idea of a desire, is not necessarily evil. It's more amoral. It can be good. It can be bad. And that's the very case I think we find ourselves in, is that we can have desires that are tethered to goodness, and we can have desires that are tethered to evil, to bad, to unholiness, to unrighteousness. So we have desires, and they're, they're tied to one thing or the other. And this is where we will begin today. That the problem we need to understand before walking into verses 7 and 8 of, the verse of chapter 1 of Ephesians is that we were captivated by the desires of the flesh. We were captivated by the desires of the flesh. Of the flesh. This is important in order for us to understand verses 7 and 8. And really, hopefully, it'll bring a lot of light on even what we've already talked about thus far. But we were captivated by the desires of the flesh. Look with me at chapter 2. I'm not going to preach these verses, just going to reference them for just a moment because they're going to help us understand verses 7 and 8. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We're really going to focus in on 
verse 3, but I want you to see 1 and 2 before we get to 3. He says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he's saying real quick that this slavery that you were a part of, you were indeed dead. That that slavery to what he's getting ready to talk to uh, talk about in a second, that you were actually dead. That wasn't freedom. You were dead. All right, stop preaching. Verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the what? The passions of our flesh. Doing what? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Right? And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? This is describing what's happened before Seven, like this is describing, let me, let me back up. This is describing what's happened in between verses 3 through 6 and verse 7 and 8. Right? This is our life in between those two places. In between God's eternal work, God's work in eternity past of choosing and predestining, and then Jesus' work on the cross in redeeming and forgiving. This is who we were. And what he says is that we walked the sons of disobedience, the course of the world, following the, priest, uh, the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature, what well, by nature, we were enslaved to this position this situation we were captivated by the desires of the flesh indeed as you look and you study the old testament the great think about the great old testament picture of the israel the israelites in egyptian bondage they were slaves I think that is probably one of the greatest pictures we have in the Old Testament to help us understand what Paul is getting ready to talk about here in verses 7 and 8. Think of the Egyptian enslavement. Matter of fact, the whole Old Testament as a whole is the story of mankind, especially the Israelites, trying to set themselves free from slavery to sin, these evil desires, by what? By keeping the law. By living the law. But they always fail at doing so. Every time. They were stuck. They are without hope in themselves. But think about, back to the Egyptian enslavement story. Just think about, why does God do such, I mean, for multiple reasons, but particularly here, why does God do such drastic plagues to rescue His people? I think it's to show the utter hopelessness of the people in their enslavement. That God's going to do these great tasks. It's just simply foreshadowing the great rescue that He's going to do in Jesus Christ. I think God even means for us to see that when Adam and Eve took on the role, we've talked about this as a church before. Uh, if you're not familiar with this idea, Adam and Eve's 
what it appears to be in Genesis that, that they're not, it's not just they sinned by eating of the fruit, but they sinned by deciding of themselves that we will determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And when Adam and Eve do that, or what we call like moral legislators, that they take on then the chains of slavery. The moment they said, we can decide good and evil for ourselves, was the moment they put on the chains to live in bondage to their perceived desires to be gods and rule themselves. And we're slaves to the same evil desires. We too were enslaved by the same desires that we could determine for ourselves what is good, what is evil, and so therefore arrange our, our beliefs in order to support our desires. So we arrange what is good and evil so that accommodates and allows for and justifies what our evil hearts desired to do. And namely, to glorify ourselves and rob God of His glory. Namely, we wanted to be the ruling authority in our lives and determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We are, we were engrossed in this. This is our condition. I hope, you know, if you got a chance to do Renovate Us this past week, that you really, really, I think I put two reallys in there, make sure that you spend time thinking through just what did your enslavement look like. And I'm not talking about, like some of us don't have this like visibly, horrifically immoral life and then God rescued us from that. And, and, and many of us like feel like we don't have that kind of story that it isn't as beautiful as, you know, the person that has that kind of visibly disgusting past to now this glorious redemption in God. The, real, the reality is that we all have, to God, a visibly disgusting and abhorred past that God has rescued us from, an enslavement that He has taken us from, to freedom in Him. I want you to think about this for a second. Just look at your current struggles. Look at your current struggles. How much do you welcome, this is an indictment on myself, do you welcome rebuke in your life from a brother or sister in Christ? How often do you seek that, welcome that, exhortation, however you want to call it, encouragement, if that makes you feel better. How often do you seek that, right? Why, why not? I, I, would advent, I, would, I would guess it has something to do with you want to reign and rule and exercise authority over your own life and I've kind of got this figured out and you know I, I've got this let me give you another example how much do you seek the scriptures in order to find more of God's gracious authority to submit yourself to so I, I keep on it's be, I venture I, I guess it's because many of us ultimately want the right ourselves to decide what is good and what is evil. And we want to submit ourselves to our declaration of that. 
I mean, like honestly, we go to the Scriptures and seeking the Scriptures. It's not just to gain knowledge, but to, to go, all right, what is God's desire and how can I submit myself to that? My question is, how much do you actively go to the Scriptures for that? And so my, my thing is, if we look at that, even just those two examples, I'm sure all of us fit somewhere in that struggle. I like what Kevin DeYoung says, the heart and the will put incredible pressure on the mind to embrace a worldview that will confirm what we're already doing and feeling. What he's talking about there is that, that we will arrange our beliefs in order to accommodate what we're already feeling and desiring to do. And so, if this is our, if you're redeemed, I, I believe I'm redeemed, and I struggle with these things, I struggle with not wanting to submit, not wanting to seek the Scriptures that it might change something that I desire doing. And if I struggle with that now, just imagine, if you struggle with that now, just imagine what your enslavement looked like pre-redemption. Okay? If you struggle with the enticement now, just think about how enticed and enslaved you were before God gave you a new heart. And it's trying to help us, because many of us, particularly if we've been Christians for a long time, we kind of get into this kind of just general good Christian morality, and we lose sight of the rescue work of God that He did. That was your enslavement. That was my enslavement. And I think the more you realize your ongoing struggle with sin and what it looked like then, the more you'll realize how great a rescue the cross was. So as we come into verse 7 and 8 here, the few verses before today that we've looked at, particularly verses 4 and 5, and discussed God's great choosing and God's great predestinating of people, the people of God. But how? This is the question. How does such a wretched people be raised to one day stand holy before God? So if that's our past, The question is then, how does God then make holy and blameless before Him our future? How does that take place? I mean, in all of our minds, we should be going, wow, I don't know. Like, how does that happen? I mean, I even, guys, I even read verses 7 and 8 and go, I just still don't know how that happens. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, that's what he says, and I'm going to try to explain it to you. But, wow! How does our enslavement end? How does it end? How does God break the captivity that began in the garden and has perpetuated throughout all history? How does that end? We all should want to know how did God set us free? Verses 7 and 8. Let's read. This is how. In Him, that is, Christ, He is referring to, 
in that pronoun. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Look at this first phrase. In him we have redemption through his blood. So here's what happens, church. This, this, so here's now everything following is going to be my frail attempt at explaining those two verses. He says, what we've done here, we have moved now from the blessings of eternal past He's talking about this in eternity past where he has chosen and predestined. The celebration of that, Paul now moves to the present redemption of Christ. He will, in a few verses, he'll be moving on to the future work. But right now we're kind of on the plane of history that we find ourselves on. And it is the redeeming work of Christ. So in the cross of Christ, here's what we see, is that God came powerfully to rescue us from our captivity to sin and eternal destruction. Let's let that set for a, a few seconds. In the cross of Christ, God came powerfully to rescue us from our captivity to sin and eternal and destruction. And remember, right, follow with me, remember that in the back of Paul's mind is the story of the Old Testament. I mean, Paul would have known the Old Testament very well. He would be thinking God's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. He would be thinking the release of slaves and how all that was done, thinking in verses, chapters like Leviticus 25, And Exodus 21, I'd encourage you to go read those passages this week. Leviticus 25, Exodus 21. The idea of redemption here connotes liberation from imprisonment and bondage. Like this idea that there is a a setting free from imprisonment, from bondage, from slavery. Basically, redemption is a, is a metaphorical reference to the price paid to buy the freedom of a captive or a slave. I think Paul's main concern is this, right? It's to communicate to us that in the death of Christ, God came powerfully to rescue his people. God came powerfully to rescue you and me. And that the death of Christ had something to do with pain for the liberation of these people. That Jesus' blood somehow fits into this setting free of us from slavery. What we see is that the climax of God's rescue effort, His rescue plan, happened in the death of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And that being the measure of God's grace and love that He has lavished upon us. 
Look at verse 8. It says, which he lavished upon us, this according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. How do you describe, describe this lavishing on us? Everything we're talking about <laughs> is the lavishing of his grace on us, is the measuring of the grace that's been lavished on us. So as we think through these next few points, just in the back of your mind, because I'm not going to address this lavishing on us beyond what I'm saying here, but he's lavished this on us, and this is the measure of that. And Paul gives us two insights into this redemption, into this redeeming work. The first one is this, the redemption comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Redemption comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, the beginning of verse 7, what's it say? In Him we have redemption, what? How? Through His blood. Whose blood? Jesus' blood. Notice that Paul says blood and not just death. He says blood, not just death. It's completely in line with Old Testament sacrifices. That's why we spent the time reading Hebrews 9 this morning. The payment for sin has always been blood. Why? Because blood represents life. The only payment possible for sin is death. Because all sin is infinitely great against an infinitely holy God. I don't have time to flesh all that out. But blood was shed in the Old Testament to appease God. Blood was Blood made the way for the dwelling of God. It made the way for the purification so that God could dwell with His people. See, sin had to be punished because sin carries with it guilt. There's a guiltiness to it. The sin has guilt. It necessarily has guilt. Sins, what happened in the Old Testament, this is very quick, but sins were placed on the animals by the laying on of the hands of the high priest. And then the animals were killed as the blood is spread, so the guilt is atoned for. Then on the day of atonement, the blood was taken, sprinkled on the mercy seat. God accepts it and forgives the people of their sins. The favor of God regained as a result of not just the blood, but what happens in the blood spreading. It's the wiping out of the guilt of sin. It's the erasing it from the board. This is guilt and it's erased from the board. The atonement is made. The price is paid. And God said that He would punish sin and that the punishment would mean death. And God could not go back on this. There had to be an ultimate price. The reality is that lambs and bulls could only temporarily appease God. But think again about the eternal covenant of grace. 
I, the Father, will forgive the people. It will be through these means. The Son, I will go. I will pay the price for their sins. And Holy Spirit, I will make that happen. I will empower that. And I will help connect the, in, the impact of this work to the hearts of these people and, and dwell God's people. And, and all this will happen in eternity. This is made, this covenant made in eternity past. So then God, is, as He's working through the Old Testament sacrificial system, what does God have in His mind? My son is going someday. These sacrifices all ultimately point to Christ. They foreshadow what Christ was able and willing to do once and for all. And so this is what God does in Jesus. He punishes him for your sins and for mine. The price is paid. The, the, the guilt is is wiped away. You know, in Hebrews 9, he talks about how blood and goats atone for the sins of the flesh, but what about the conscience? What about the very root and core of who we are? Jesus can do that. And Jesus does that. So what happens then is God is just and that sin is punished is the idea of substitutionary atonement, someone dying in the place of someone else, is not something that God came up with at Jesus. It's something that's been here from the very beginning. And so God is just. That was Hayden's amen. I think that was Hayden. <laughs> God is just, and that sin is punished in Christ, yet God is the justifier because He forgives us only because our sin have been punished and our guilt removed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So He is able to be both just and the justifier. Sin is paid for. That makes Him a just God. He is the justifier making us just through Jesus Christ. He is both just and the justifier. So kind of that first subpoint was that sin had to be punished because it carried with its guilt. The next thing is that with any setting free of a slave comes a purchase price. Now remember, we were slaves to our evil desires with no hope apart from God. Utter enslavement. We must be set free from these evil desires so that God can indwell us in order to change our hearts to desire God and His holiness. I, I know I just said a whole lot. We're going to unpack that as we go. This is freedom. Freedom is loving and living the way God created us to. That's freedom. Now, in another sense, that's enslavement, but it's enslavement to God, enslavement to righteousness, enslavement to the way you were created to live. That's freedom. Freedom is not the toy saying to the toy maker, I think I want to go be a plane when I was made to be an automobile. What's going to happen? He's going to fail miserably every time he's trying to be an airplane. Instead, he was made to be an automobile. So when he submits to the desire of the Creator, then he's most free. What's the greatest command, right? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do you think that entails? Loving the same things that God loves. Having the same desires that, that God has. I don't want to preach on this, but right, the, God will give you the desires of your heart. What is that all about? 
Those are a for sure thing when your desires are His desires. He'll give those. You get those. But what has to happen, though, is something must be given in exchange for our freedom. Something has to happen for us to be set free from this entrapment, this this captivity to evil desires. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as what? A ransom for many. A ransom for many. So Christ came and died in order to purchase us from our slavery. And specifically, His blood being the payment. Through His blood, there in verse 7, is a reference to the purchase price. To set us free from this enslavement. And what I'm saying is the enslavement is the desire for evil. And He's setting us free from that through His blood. The blood is the price being paid for that. There's multiple... I'm just going to give a few just very quickly here of some examples of Scripture talking about believers being bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20a For you were bought with a price. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you were ransomed by this. Hebrews 9, 12 He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption, not one that had to be repeated each year, not one that just atoned for the sins of the flesh, but one that purifies the conscience. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. All of this signifies Christ's violent death on the cross as a sacrifice. The means by which our deliverance is paid for. Our deliverance is won. Our enslavement is ended because of His blood. Our guilt was wiped out because God placed our sin on Jesus and He suffered the wrath of God, the punishment for that sin in our place as a substitution. He dies so we don't have to. And then when we place our faith in the work of Jesus Christ, and the blood that covers what happens, the blood then covers the mercy seat of our hearts, right? Therefore, when God looks at us, just as He did on the Ark of the Covenant, He looks at us through the blood of His Son Jesus and declares us righteous and holy. Keep that in your mind, okay? Keep that in your mind. So here was our situation. We were slaves to our evil desires. A ransom had to be paid. Why? Because the only way to set us free from our evil, tethered desires is to change those desires. 
to take the tethering from evil and tether it to something different. What's that something different? When we repent of sins, where do we move our faith to? It's to Christ. It's to God. It's to His righteousness. It's to His holiness. So what does God do? What does the blood do? The blood purifies us. It wipes the guilt out so that what can happen? So that God can indwell His people by giving them new hearts. And what happens with all of that? New desires come about. Desires that are beginning to be tethered more strongly each day to things that are good, things that are reflective of the God that now indwells His people. So upon payment and ransom of our souls comes the forgiveness of sin. Again, part of this, how does this enslavement become eradicated? The forgiveness of sin is necessary, is the necessary beginning of our redemption. It's the necessary beginning of our redemption. He says, We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what Paul says. How can you be in relationship with God if you are dead in your trespasses and sins? You're basically, I think what he's saying is that you, you are, when you think about a, a slave, are they alive to the world? No, they're alive to their master. And he's saying that you all were not alive to God, you were dead to your master. You're dead to God, you're slaves to your trespasses and sins. You were dead in these things. So divine forgiveness coming from God is essential to the restoration of relationship with the Father. Without forgiveness, we cannot be right before God. Our guilt for our sin has to be wiped away. Now, this is a tough thing, I think, for us to understand today because we've so watered down the idea of forgiveness. I don't have time to, to dive into all this, but when you think about forgiveness, we, oh, just forgive them so you can move on. Right? I hear that all the time. People have done something wrong. Well, just forgive them so you can move on. Is that what happens in the gospel? Does God just forgive us so that he can move on? No. There's a price that's paid. Sin is confronted. A price is paid. Repentance and recognition of that sin happens. And then forgiveness is granted. It's not just forgiveness so that I can move on. The reality is, is that guilt cannot be overlooked. Sin must be dealt with. So even as the people of God, we can't just forgive and move on. Now there's other things that we need to do so that we can move on. It's probably just confess our idolatry of the situation so we can move on. But it's not just forgive. Forgive comes with repentance. Forgiveness comes with the asking of forgiveness. God does that. God, so we got, God confronts our sin. Now let's look at how sin is dealt with in the context. We don't like the declaration that we are dead in our trespasses. Why? 
Because we want to feel alive and powerful on our own, right? He says we were dead. Many of us want to study Scripture or hear preaching that helps us see Christ as a means to overcome sin, but only for the goal of happiness. Now, we have to be very, very careful. We study the Scriptures that our goal is not just to be happy people. Our goal is to be happy in God. Right? Lest we just become moral-seeking people, morality-seeking people, religious people, good religious people. So how does God confront sin here? If this is necessary, if the confrontation of sin, the wiping out of guilt, if that's all necessary, how does that happen right here in the context? First thing that we see is that God's first step towards forgiveness is the exposing of sin. God exposes sin for what it is. How does God do that, and how are we getting that from this passage? You know the phrase there, if you look in verse 7, the forgiveness of our what? What's that word? It's trespasses, right? What is the idea of trespasses? What it means is a violation of the law. It means that you've done something that violates the law. Where does the law come from? The law is, is a display of God's character, at least in part. The law is perfect. It's glorious. But what God does, the law is meant to expose the condition of our sin. It's, ex- it's meant to reveal it to us and to the world. Our tendency, though, when it comes to sin, is to cover it up. We want to hide it. We want to keep it to ourselves. God deals with sin by exposing it, defining it, pinpointing it. This is your sin. That's why the law is so specific. There's so much detail there. This is why we, particularly in our one-on-two and three discipleship groups DNA, we want to expose with specificity the sin that rests in our hearts. We want to see this is, this is what God does. God exposes sin. He doesn't just cover it. There's an exposing of it. Then God exposes the enormity of our sin. So first, He exposes the reality of the sin and exposes the enormity of our sin. What? How do you... Oh my goodness, where? How do you see that? As I like what one scholar said, the cross condemns us before it sets us free. The cross condemns us before it sets us free. What do I mean by that? The cross shows us the enormity of our sin. For what sin would require such great a payment? I mean, guys, it's not like God's getting ready to go buy a beater and He says, here, let me give you $5 million for your beater, right? No. He's buying a $10 billion sin with a $10 billion price. He's not overpaying your, well, I guess in one way He is, but uh, (laughs) technically He is. (laughs) But, listen, it speaks to the enormity of our sin. You know, it's when I 
someone I read, I, I couldn't remember, so I, I can't cite this person, but they said, when we come face to face with God, it's then that we realize what such worms we are. The cross condemns us before it sets us free. But you see, those who have seen the glory of the cross move beyond its condemnation in order to see its salvation. Amen? We'll get to that in a few. So God exposes sin. He reveals the enormity of us. And certainly God grants our repentance. We'll get to that a little bit later. Not today, but seeing the reality of our actions as sin along with the guilt we carry and then placing the placing of faith in Christ as the one who bore the guilt for that sin. Repentance forces us to face ourselves, examine ourselves, see ourselves as we really are, then to face the reality of who Christ is, what He has done, who He really is, the Holy One bearing the punishment for our guilt. So forgiveness doesn't just, God just doesn't go, okay, Jesus died on the cross, awesome, I can forgive you guys so that we can be friends. God doesn't do that exposes our sin, reveals the enormity of it, brings us to repentance and faith. Again, it's at the cross. God, at the cross, God does not overlook our sin. God does not grant forgiveness arbitrarily. Instead, He faces it head on and says, it is vile, the sin is repulsive, it's more difficult than even the creation of the world to deal with, but I am dealing with it in the death of my son. I'm paying the ransom for your rescuing and making reality the forgiveness of my faithful chosen people. Then, God then brings about repentance and faith. Upon his forgiveness, God can now indwell his people, giving them what? As God indwells his people, what's he do? He gives them new desires. What is that? That is freedom from the slavery that we had. So what is the ransom price? What is the ransom? What does the blood do? What is he paying the price? He's paying and paving the way for the indwelling of God. What comes with the indwelling of God? New hearts. What comes with new hearts as the indwelling of God? New desires. Slavery to righteousness. Set free from the enslavement to sin. I want to encourage you. Here's the deal. This forgiveness, the redemption, will continue to the day we meet our Savior. In one sense, it's done. In another sense, it will continue. We stand before God. God looks on us through the blood of His Son. We are redeemed. We are purified in the blood. God indwells us. Romans 8, though, talks about like the redemption, the future redemption of our body. You can go read that later. And just like the Israelites, what do they do when they get to the Red Sea and they're out wandering in the wilderness just after the Egyptian enslavement? What do they say? We were better off as slaves back in Egypt. We were better off back there, right? We do the same thing. 
God has just redeemed us. He, so He's just redeemed the Israelites and set them free from captivity. For you and I, He's redeemed us from our enslavement, set us free from captivity, given us new hearts. But what do we often do? I was better off back then. Now that may not, for many of us, it may not be like we just want to, we want to go back into the craziness that was our past life, but it might be we want to go back to the sin from six months ago or the sin from three days ago. And that sin from three days ago is what? It's just resemblance. It's just, it's just a bad hangover from your enslavement from years ago. It's just continuing on. You just want to go back to that. We, as slaves to good desires, want constantly to drive back. I want us to think, though, just for a moment about the ongoing redemptive work of Christ. The blood of Christ is an offense to us often. And here's why. Because the blood of Christ continues to remind us that we were once enslaved and we often want to go back. What are, what are we saying when we want to roll around like children in the mud with our past enslavement? What are we saying? We're, we're saying that I was better off in slavery, right? I was better off back then. Why was I, why, now, why in that moment would you be thinking I'm better off? Because your evil desires were being satisfied back then, and it's not being satisfied. It's like, like you're trying to choke it out. Yes, you are. You're trying to choke it out. And that's painful. How many of you are addicted to caffeine? Yeah, a, a pretty much everyone, or most people. Okay, yeah. What happens when you try to choke out that caffeine addiction? <laughs> yeah, you get really bad headaches, don't you? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you're trying to choke out that previous enslavement. God is taking over and choking out. And the glorious thing is that He will do that and continue to do that and promises to finish that. In one sense, it was finished at the cross. In another sense, God is continuing working that out and will finish it from our perspective once we reach heaven. Or for some of you people, once we reach glory, right? If we reach heaven, God will finish that. So the blood of Christ, though, says to us, even today, that we need forgiveness. And that if we need forgiveness, what does that mean? That means that your declaration of right and wrong that you have been determining for yourself and the subsequent actions that come from that are wrong. Matter of fact, they're dead wrong. And when we're faced with the blood daily, it says to us, these things that we desire are resemblance and, and still effects from our enslavement. We are no longer, though, enslaved to that. We are now slaves to the one who paid the price for our freedom. So the blood is often offensive to us, even today. We don't like being told that we're lazy in our pursuit to God. We just call that legalism. We don't like to be told that our world revolves around anything but God. We want to call that legalism. I like what Lloyd-Jones said. He says, you're not, because the problem is that you're not interested in righteousness. You just want happiness. You want power in your lives. You want anything that will give you joy. Anything but God, of course, is what he is implying. 
I want to know. I want to know, church, are we interested in righteousness when we seek God? Or are we interested in just happiness apart from God? Do we want him to set us free from our enslavement so that we can just be good, joyful people? Or do we want to set us free from our enslavement so that we can be his? You know, as we seek to become a community of change, like that's our, one of our big visions for Renovation Church, that we would be a, a community of change. And we would it'd be a community project, if you will as Tim Chester calls it. We'd be a community project, and I think Tripp calls it that as well. Sometimes, though, it's like speaking a foreign language. I won't go into the story, but Lloyd-Jones talked about a doctor speaking a foreign language to a friend, and and I want to use that language here to say this. Sometimes, when we talk about trying to bring about change in each other's lives, that speaking of this change and, and, and... confronting each other sometimes in sin and encouraging each other in those and exhorting each other. And sometimes it's like speaking a foreign language because someone who hasn't been speaking the language of repentance will not understand the language of exhortation. We have to understand that, that this repentance and, and this ongoing redemption work of God, this is all these things are tied together. We have to realize our need for God. If you're not, I want to encourage you. This ongoing work, redemption, yes, in one sense started then and was finished then at the cross. But it's at that crossroads that God's redemption continues in our lives. The next thing I want you to see is that God has given us spiritual discernment so that we would know and believe in His saving work. Just a couple quick points here, and we'll be done. So verse 7 through 8, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, what? In all wisdom and insight. Let's talk about this phrase, in all wisdom and insight. We have been caught up in the American dream that just blanket knowledge is power. Our world is so full of knowledge, yet knows nothing. I would just say quickly, mom and dads, is that what you want for your kids as well? Do you want them to know 2 plus 2 equals 4, but have no clue that the cross and faith equals freedom from sin and eternal life with the Father. Yes, we need to know 2 plus 2 equals 4. That glorifies God. But how does this fit into God's bigger picture? What are you doing wisdom and insight that God is giving you? What are we spending it on? What are we, what are we gaining with knowledge? and What are we doing with that? And so we've, we've been so trapped in pursuit of knowledge for wrong reasons, for to glorify ourselves. And, but I just want to bring us in here. What is he talking about? Knowledge, wisdom, and insight. I think God has given us wisdom and insight to discern the truth of God's rescue plan. To discern the truth of redemption. Now, just, just to be 
transparent here, this phrase can be taken a couple of different ways. Now, both ways that you can understand this phrase are both still true. It's just a matter of what is he saying in this passage. Those two ways are, when it comes to this wisdom and insight, is the first one is this. You can understand it as that God lavished all His grace on us in His wisdom and insight. Right? That God has all wisdom and insight, and, upon, and in that He has lavished His grace upon us. That statement is surely true. We can find plenty of other passages that would support that statement. The question is, is that what Paul's saying here? The second way to understand is that God lavished on us His grace, and as a part of that grace is giving us wisdom and insight. Now, when you study like scholars and how they understand this, like they're kind of like split down the middle. Guys who have the same interpretive lens into Scripture, like split down the middle. That was not helpful this week. Heeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I just, I need, I, I feel the need anyways to land somewhere. I think it's the latter of those two. I think God has given his people spiritual discernment. And I think that largely because of the context and the phrase that immediately follows where he's going to say, if you look back there at verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the what the mystery of his will the insight and wisdom to understand the mystery of his will i think that's what helps us there so that'll tie in to next week very easily so i think wisdom and insight seem to be the same way of saying the same thing for paul here this wisdom and, and insight knowledge and wisdom is very similar wording but I think he's referring to, ultimately, spiritual discernment to see these things. Now, again, either way you take it, both statements are very true. So neither of them are going to change, ultimately. It's just, what is Paul saying here? So I think God lavishes on us His grace through this wisdom and insight, I think, for two reasons. One is this, so that we might know the truth of the gospel, our enslavement, and its rescue. And that's the first thing that we would know this redeeming work of God, this enslavement and its rescue through Jesus the blood. He gives eyes to see this, eyes to understand it, to discern it. Second, the second reason He lavishes on us in grace this wisdom and insight is so that we might live now in light of this truth. That we'd be able to discern how we should live in light of this truth, this gospel truth. God has given us spiritual discernment to walk in redemption, basically. To walk in freedom from slavery. To go, oh no, I'm wanting to venture back into slavery. This is not good. I am free. This spiritual discernment to see those things. I hope to you, I hope that's an encouragement. God has given us eyes to see these things. Look, Ephesians 5.15, Paul says this, in this very book, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Those with wisdom. Walk as those with wisdom. You know, when a follower of Jesus is saturated with the knowledge of God's word, as given by God as wisdom and insight, they're equipped with the spiritual discernment to face anything that comes their way. 
Sarah and I were talking this past week about a, a lady that her and I both know, and like just how like rock steady this lady is, just through trials and difficulties, just how? And I just, I just look at that and go, oh my gosh, like, oh, maybe someday, right? Maybe someday. It, she just knows the scriptures. She has spiritual discernment of knowing, from knowing the scripture that God has granted her to see the scriptures, to understand them. But he's done the same thing for us. He's given us the power to see the scriptures, to go to the scriptures, to study the scriptures. Like what scholar Kent Hughes said, he said, wisdom is the knowledge which sees the heart of things, which knows them as they really are. So, so this is the deal. You and I, anyone can know that Jesus died on the cross for people's sins, but to know that as it really is, what that really means for you and I, God has to grant that in all wisdom and insight. And then he says this, he goes, understanding is that which leads to right actions. So let's go on to this last point. Look at 7 through 8. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The riches of God's grace causes God's rescuing, redeeming work. The riches of God's grace. The riches of divine grace are the ultimate cause of our redemption. Why does God do this? What causes God to do this? To send His Son. To redeem us. To pay the price for our redemption. To set us free from captivity. You know that phrase, according to? It's, it's awesome. If you, if you think through the phrase of according to, it's not simply from the riches of His grace. He's not just giving us from the riches of His grace. He's giving according to the riches of His grace. Think of it this way. A rich man can give ten pennies from his vast wealth. But if he gives an amount that is relative to his riches, he is giving in accordance with his riches. So he's not just giving. So a wealthy man can give ten pennies from his ten billion. And yes, did he give, but he gave from his riches. But to give according to would be this vast amount. And that's what I was saying last week. Don't live as though you're the son of a pauper. Live as though you're a son of the eternal king of God. Because then you can give your life according to the riches of your father. Not according to the riches of this poor father. So we are, what's he saying here? He's saying that we are bought from captivity to sin by the blood of Jesus Christ because God's grace is so overflowing that He lavished it on us. Like the idea of grace here is like a, a, a causation. Like it's a, according to this grace is what moved forward out of God's character towards us. 
Here's my couple closing thoughts. Many of, this, many of us in this room don't realize just how enslaved we are. I would say all of us, even. We have two categories of people. One, if you're not a follower of Christ or not sure if you're a follower of Christ, you need to wake, something needs to wake you up to your captivity. You are a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin and eternal destruction. Every day you live as though you got this and everything is fine. One day God will recognize that I'm a good person. What you don't realize is that you're a slave. A slave to your sin. A slave to guessing every day. Will this make me right before God? And every day apart from Christ, you, dis- you declare your independence from God. You declare this. Slave to your sin. And I pray, I pray that God will give you the eyes, the spiritual discernment to see His glorious rescue, whereby He washes away the guilt of your sin in the blood of His Son, Jesus. Second group of people, those of you who Believe you're followers of Christ. I want to encourage you. Many of you live each and every day as if you are a slave to sin. And I want to tell you, you're not a slave to that sin anymore. There is blood that was paid to set you free. Whether that's pornography or lust or idolatry or shame or whatever it is. God, Jesus paid the price for you and set you a captive free. Because of the blood, you have been forgiven. And I want to encourage you, go live as one who has been redeemed by the forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus comes through his blood and that he has so graciously lavished upon us I'll close with these words from John Newton he said this when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun the church, I would say this to you. Let the cross enslave your desires. Let's pray. Father, you've set us free. You've set us free. I don't know why we as children want to run, run into enslavement of sin's past. Oh, why we continue to walk in slavery today. Those chains are not permanently attached to our hands. Father, throwing those chains off is not just a matter of 
speaking good things to myself or just emotionally feeling it, uh, Father, but there is a, a recognition of these. I'm sinning in this and repentance that comes and throwing these chains off. Because, Father, I'm not a slave to these things anymore. And then faith in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that He not only set me free from the enslavement of my past, but He still guarantees my freedom today. And that one day I will walk in your presence, God, with no enticement to put on the chains of my past slavery, but I'll only be chained to you, our most holy God. So, Father, I pray that we today, those of, you, those of us who are your children, we would recognize our freedom in Jesus. We would believe that. We would trust in your redeeming work. And, Father, for those who don't know if they're a follower of your son, Jesus, that, Father, they would repent of their sins and place their trust in the work that you did on the cross. They would ask you for forgiveness and believe that you justified them through the blood of Jesus. Well, we give you praise for this time of worship. And it's in your son's name. Amen.